Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Amen. Um, friends, I thought, my name's Mike, by the way, if you're new. I thought I moved to Nashville, not Minnesota, ladies and gentlemen. What, what is this? I, I heard it was mild. No, explain to me. Someone explain to me what is happening. The snow, and then we've got free, I mean, guys, this, I moved from Ohio, right? This is Ohio winter. This is awful. This is gray. It's murky. Come on. I did not bring it with me. And what about the Titans? Ladies and gentlemen, what? What? A, dude. I mean, it's just, it's just horribly depressing. I'm shocked any of us are here this morning. I want Christmas at 70 degrees. That, were, that was my expectations. And then you just killed it, Nashville. So... You went to Florida for Christmas? It was set. No, it was 70 here, right? Oh, now's the time to go to Florida. I like that you guys are chirpy today. I really like that because guess what? We're going to do some talking for the next 30 minutes. Hello, my name is Mike. I want to thank the three people in this section. Well done. All right. Uh, if you're new to our community, obviously very formal, and um, we're very excited that you're here. Hello, if you're online, we have a ton of people online today because of just sickness, so it's just, it's crazy. Anyway, um, we're going to start a new series of conversations today. I know you all came in and you were wondering, what are we going to talk about? Well, ladies and gentlemen, do I have good news for you? We're going to talk about the Bible. And not only the Bible, we're going to talk about the most famous teaching of Jesus. We're going to spend six months in a, a piece of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount. And it's not Jesus on a horse, it is Jesus on a mountain. Come on! And, um, oh, it's glorious. And we're calling it the Upside Down Kingdom, with, accompanied by a cool graphic. And, punch the graphic, punch it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, I know. I know. I know. Um, so, so uh, and if you're, if you're not familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, it's, um, next slide if you would, it's, it begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, and it ends with, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Or it includes the Lord's Prayer. It includes a, a, a section called Beatitudes. Six times Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. We're talking about love of enemies and money and worry. And I mean, it just covers amazing stuff. And as we were considering and praying about what to explore as a community, we were like, there is nothing more relevant than this portion of text about what it is to be fully human in this day and age in the world we find ourselves in. So, um, uh, this is a setup for the Sermon on the Mount, which will officially start next week. This text of scriptures has a really interesting interpretive history. 
Um, for instance, back in the day, the Catholic Church viewed this passage of Scripture as something only for, this, for the priesthood. Normal, ordinary Christians could not be expected to obey commands such as love your enemy and bless those who persecute you. So it was considered only to, uh, to be applied to the priesthood. Uh, the Lutheran tradition considered it only dealing with your private interior life, not your public political life. Um, well, I was raised in a dispensational, which if you don't know what that is, that is just fine, tradition that said these instructions are just for the future kingdom of God. Um, and then there are Reformed folks today who argue, hey, all, the point of this text is to just show us our need for Jesus. Because none of us can measure up, and so it reminds us that we need Jesus. The problem is, Jesus ends the passage by saying, hey, it'd be a great idea if you put these words into practice. So we're, we're going to take him at his word. This is actually what it looks like to live a Christian life. And not just a Christian life. Remember, salvation in the Bible is about being fully human. Right? When we're created in the garden, we're created in the image of God. And the issue, when Paul starts talking about his gospel, is that, that human beings have sinned and fallen short of what? The image of God. It doesn't say there's some righteous standard out there that we fall short. It's that our original vocation as expressed in, in image bearers, bless you, uh, we've fallen short of. And so the restoration is to image bearing. That's what salvation turns out to be. And image bearing, as God designed it, is what it is to be fully human. And so these are not a series, this is not a series of religious instruction. This is not about what it means to have Jesus, you know, accepting Jesus into your heart. This is literally about how human beings were designed to function best, operating in forgiveness and self-sacrificial enemy love and the blessing of those who aren't normally considered to be blessed. All right? So we're going to read a section that builds up to the sermon because what Jesus, uh, what Jesus is setting up here is pretty great. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4. Ladies and gentlemen, boom. Verse 17, we hear in summary um, what Jesus came to preach. From that time on, Matthew 4, 17, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he called, or excuse me, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Make sense? Come follow me. I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, we have to camp on this phrase a little bit. Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God has come what? Near. Now, let's, and he uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same thing. Heaven, the way Matthew uses it, is just a stand in for God. So uh, if, if we say, hey, the White House issued a press release today, we know that the literal house didn't do any talking, correct? The White House is a realm of authority that stands for the executive branch of our government. Make sense? Heaven is not a place we go where we die. It's a place where God reigns. 
So it's a place of authority. So the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are exactly the same thing, all right? We're not talking about heaven somewhere else. We're talking about the place where God rules and reigns. And so from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near (laughs) with signs and wonders. So let's do, let's do 10 minutes on what is the kingdom of God, shall we? Fascinating question. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. All good biblical theology starts here. Genesis chapter 1, the first mention of royal language is in Genesis chapter 1. And we get an image of God as an artistic king who's literally speaking order into chaos, who's speaking beauty into wilderness and waste. And, and he does it in the course of a full Sabbath cycle of, of six days of work and one day of rest. And the crowning achievement of this creation narrative uh, is found in verse 27. So God created humanity in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then what's the next word? Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds uh, in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now, for those of you that own your own businesses, would you describe what you do as ruling? No, right? We don't rule. We're, we're like, we, we collaborate. We build teams. We lead, right? Ruling is a royal word. And so the implication is if human beings are to rule because they're made in the image of God, what's God doing? God's ruling too, right? So, so from the very beginning, and again, this is super, super apparent in Hebrew. These are words to us that we've heard them so much they've kind of lost their meaning. But to be made in the image of God, that's a royal image. That's suggesting that the humans that have been created are co-rulers with God and participants in his kingdom as God expresses his kingship through the humans so that all of creation might flourish. So to be made in the image of God is to be rulers. It's a royal picture. Now, the, the humans, um, how well do they do here? Right, we get two pages of awesome. Right now, we don't know how much time that is, but by the third page, they've decided that they're, they're, the opportunity they have to rule with God, they're going to use for their own self-advantage. And that they're going to define good and evil for themselves. That's what the tree sort of represents. And what they do instead is they create another realm of authority, their own realm, a counter-kingdom, if you will. So all of a sudden now you have this, and we've talked about this before, this rend uh, between the heavens where God rules and the earth where now human wills uh, combined with the powers and the principalities are done. And God, so God's intention was to create this human race of image bearers to rule with him, with him as king, and his sovereignty manifested through their participation. That last two pages, now they've established a counter kingdom. So what does God do next? Genesis 12. 
Out of all of the kingdoms of the world, God calls a man and his wife to now be the beachhead of a new human community. So in Genesis 12, he says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great what? Nation. So out of the nations of the world, he calls a couple an infertile elderly couple to establish a new nation, a new people. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. Whoever, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the same cycle happens. God initially created human persons uh, to be his image bearers, to rule with him, and they do not live up to that expectation. Then God, in response, forms another community of humans, the tribe of Abram. We know them as Israel, right? And their job was the same job that was given to our first parents, to rule, to establish a beachhead of, um, of, a, of witness to what it looks like when people live under the gracious, gracious reign of Yahweh. That was the invitation. And you know, they get into trouble pretty early. They're enslaved by um, a pharaoh and in Egypt. And so one of the most important stories of God's kingship in the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus. And in fact, the first time that God is called king is in Exodus chapter 15. Immediately after God delivers his people through the water, the water crashes over Pharaoh and his armies, they sing a song. Moses and the Israelites sang the song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and driver of Israel, or of Egypt, excuse me. He is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then later the, the song ends with the Lord reigns forever and ever. Literally in Hebrew, it's Yahweh is king forever and ever. It's the first mention we get of the kingship of God over his people. Now, how well does Israel do after this point about honoring Yahweh's kingship? How well do they do? Hey, you got quiet. So they really did badly. <laughs> I'll just finish that thought. They really did badly. Right? In fact, at one point we're told in uh, the books of Samuel that they literally rejected God as their king. So when you get to the idea of kingdom in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, what you get is a combination of three concepts. Go ahead and put that next slide up. The kingdom is the combination of a king who forms a people to live under the king's reign. Make sense? Not super, not super difficult. A king who forms a people to live under his reign. Now the first time the king, creator, and redeemer Yahweh did this was with Adam and Eve. He created people and invited them to live under his rulership, his governance. And what was the one command he gave them? Enjoy all the garden except the one tree, the fruit of the one tree. And so what do they do? The fruit of the one tree we must have. 
right? And then, and then what does God do next? In response to that fallenness, he calls an, a person, Abram, his wife Sarah, and then forms them into a community, and he takes them to a mountain after he rescues them from Pharaoh, and he gives them Torah, the, the literal expression of what it means to live under God's good rule. And how well do they do? Poorly. But this is what kingdom means, all right? And now we're just setting up what it means and what the, is, or what the Jews would have heard when they heard the phrase kingdom of God. Are you with me so far? Okay, one last Old Testament piece. Because Israel did such a bad job honoring God's kingship, in fact, rejecting him as king at one point, the prophets and the poets of Israel for generations kept alive a hope that God would return as king over his people. So for instance, in Isaiah, we get a text like this. The image in Isaiah is that you are like a guard of a city on the wall of a city and your city is besieged. Your enemies are closing in and you're waiting for good news, some sort of message to come. Um, okay, that one's working. That one's working. Fantastic. Some sort of message to come that's a message of deliverance, right? So in Isaiah, it says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring what? Who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Jerusalem, or Israel, your God, what? Reigns. Next. Listen. Your watchmen on the walls lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Next. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Next. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Next. So in Isaiah, what was the message of good news? Good news was that your God still reigns. Your God is coming to reign. He's coming to take back what was lost. It's all throughout the prophets and the poets. You get these images that God is coming back to establish his kingship over the earth, to restore it to how he originally intended it to be. All right? Makes sense so far. That's our Old Testament tour. Fantastic. We could literally spend three hours on all of the nuances about what it meant when you would hear the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. All right? So when we get back to Matthew and you hear, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, what is Jesus saying? The message Jesus is bringing is that Yahweh is returning as king over Israel and the earth. That Yahweh is coming to fix the mess we've made. That Yahweh is returning to Jerusalem as the enthroned ruler to reestablish governance over the nations. Right? And that was very good news. So God is coming back to take back what is his. Now for some of us, (laughs) um, there's so much God talk in our world today about God coming back and taking back. And often that God talk is represented and accompanied by things that have nothing to do with Jesus. So for some of you, it's quite natural to be suspicious when you hear God is coming to take the world back, to be like, ah, what's that exactly mean? That God is coming to take the world back. 
Is this a violent sort of thing? Is this we're kicking out all the pagans? I mean, what does this mean exactly? And for Israel, that's what it meant. We're getting rid of Rome. We're going to deal with all the sinners, and Israel will be brought up to its place at the forefront of the nations. But that's not what Jesus meant. And what's fascinating when you go back to Matthew is Jesus preaches this, and then what's the first thing he does? According to Matthew 4, a king who forms a what? A community. Yes, exactly. He forms a people. So, as Jesus, he announces the kingship of God has arrived. As Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. What's he doing? Same thing Yahweh did with Adam and Eve. Same thing Yahweh did with Abram and Sarah. Now he's doing with fishermen. Forming a community who will live under the reign of the good and redeeming God. And that's what follow me means. Follow me doesn't mean, hey, let's take a walk together. Follow me in that culture would have been a, a, a rabbi to a disciple saying, come learn to live the kind of life I'm living. It was a way in which they would live under the reign of Jesus of Nazareth. Right? And then notice he keeps going. And, and these aren't religious all-stars. These are just laborers. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee. That's what son of Zebedee means, right? Your dad's name is Zebedee. Preparing their nets, Jesus called them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, what happens next? Jesus, verse 23 went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. So, the way Matthew tells the story, Jesus is going to record for us what, or excuse me, Matthew is going to record for us what Jesus was teaching in the synagogues and the good news he was proclaiming. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And then, in chapters 8 and 9, which we're not going to study, you get nothing but stories of healing, uh, of sickness and demons. And so Matthew literally is going to say, when God's kingdom comes to earth, let me tell you what it looks like. It comes through the words of Jesus, and here are three chapters, and it comes through the healing power of Jesus. Here are two chapters that show that. Makes sense. Makes sense so far. I've lost you completely. You're sleeping and you're drowsy. I don't blame you. I know the Old Testament is scary and frightening, but you can't understand Jesus without it. Now, I want to make a couple of observations about when Jesus preaches the kingdom of God is near. Because the point of today is understanding that phrase so that when we get to the Beatitudes and uh, um, you know, the Lord's Prayer and all those sorts of things, we're not thinking it's for some future people, and we're not thinking it's just for some spiritual elite or something private that goes on in your heart, that you understand that what Matthew's doing is when he says Jesus preached the kingdom, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what his preaching was. It's not something that happens in your heart where you read your Bible and pray and then have nothing to do with God the rest of our days. It's No, no, it's the total reorientation of the entirety of human life. 
And so the Sermon on the Mount becomes this manifesto of what it is to be fully human, what it is to live into this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. And a couple of implications about the kingdom. First of all, and, and this I want to make sure I get right. Notice, in what direction does the kingdom come? When Jesus says the kingdom has come near, what's, what direction is that? Is it us to heaven or heaven to us? Right. The kingdom of heaven comes here. And, and we've made this point before, but it still bears repeating over and over and over again. That the story of the Bible isn't of God evacuating people out of here. The story of the Bible is God drawing near. He walks with them in the cool of the day in the garden. Right? And then he says, build me a tabernacle that I might dwell among you. And build me a temple that I might dwell among you. And then Jesus comes as the tabernacle of God dwelling among them. And then Jesus says, it's for your good that I go away so that my spirit might now dwell among you. And then the Bible ends with a new Jerusalem coming down from the heavens to the earth. So for far too long, Christians have embraced the theology that says, what happens here doesn't matter. It's all going to burn. We're going to spend forever in heaven. And as we've talked about, heaven's a real place and God has real authority there, but it's the first stop on a round trip. We end up in a new heavens and a new earth. And new there, we did a whole series on this, doesn't mean brand new. It means renewed. There are parts of human life here that carry forward into new creation. That this all matters that we're still called to be image bearers and wise stewards over the creation that God has made. And that our theology isn't escapist theology. Our theology is, is blood and earth and dirt theology. To be fully human isn't to be spiritual. There's no Hebrew word for spiritual. It's just to be human in all of its wonder and weirdness. So when it says the kingdom has come near, it's God pursuing us. Second implication is when I was growing up, I was told that uh, I, what I needed to do was to accept Jesus in my heart. Have you heard this phrase? I don't even know what that means. You never see it in the Bible. Not once do you see, hey, when they're preaching, accept Jesus in your heart. Not once, ever. The kingdom of God is a social and political reality that is public in its manifestations. In other words, it has very little to do with my internal world and has everything to do with reorienting our social and economic practices as a community. We have these strains of sort of spirituality that have come in that are all about rescuing us to heaven. And God, if that's all that happened, hallelujah for that. But that's not all that happens. So when Jesus is preaching the kingdom, what's coming to mind isn't good. When I die, something great happens. What's coming to mind is finally this messed up, screwed up world and all of our contributions to it 
are going to be cleaned up as Yahweh takes his rightful throne. And that's not something that happens over in a corner or in our hearts. That's something that happens in the midst of a community of flesh and blood. Are you with me? So Christian kingdom spirituality has everything to do with this world and it has everything to do with how it is that we treat each other and how it is that we live together as a community. And so all of the instructions we're about to give are social. They're all social. And that's why the sermon becomes so threatening because if it's just about me loving Jesus in my heart, well, that's pretty subjective and easy. But when it becomes concretely loving my enemy even though I don't like them, well, that's a much harder ask. And so the invitation throughout the sermon is around this word, repent. And, and this word has gotten a lot, a lot of baggage. Would you agree? I used to go, um, I am from Ohio, lived in California for 20 years, moved back to Ohio before I moved to the frost-laden plains of Nashville. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And there are two reasons for that, Tim. Number one, you dress for the room. You don't dress for outside. Number two, this is I'm protesting the existence of winter. And thirdly, I mean, my wife says I have great legs, so why would I hide that? You don't, you don't light a lamp and put a bowl over it. I mean, that's what, that's what jeans are, Tim. If I haven't told you lately, I absolutely love being a part of this community. This is so, this is so fun. Let's talk about repent, Tim, just as you now need to do. (laughs) Repent is one of those words. I would go to Ohio State Buckeye games, and there was always somebody there with a huge sign that would be like, repent or burn. Yeah, yeah, preaching Jesus, right? This was the message, repent or burn. Um, Or maybe you've heard it said, uh, get right or get left, Um, which is awesome. Um, Yeah. And so repentance has just sort of, at least for me, in my religious tradition, maybe not for you, repentance has always taken on this kind of ugly, like, uh, religious connotation of feeling super bad about something I'm doing wrong, promising to do better, and then failing again, and having to do that process over and over and over. And that's not what Jesus means when he says the word repent. Repent is, hey, in light of the fact that God's kingship is being reestablished on the earth and that God is forming a community of volunteers who would love to participate in that, rethink the way you're living. That's all it is. Hey, you, if you're interested in this whole God thing, it's going to require a bit of reorientation to get a part of this thing that God's doing. That's all it is. It doesn't have to be super emotional. It doesn't have to be under, you know, played over just as I am. It can just be over and over a decision to, I want to put away something that is not true of me and is true of the old creation age. And I want to embrace something that's now true of me as part of the new creation that God's bringing about. That's all it is. 
The best example of this is um, a poem by Portia Nelson. And it's called An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. And this is the invitation for us this morning. When we take the bread, we go write down things on the paper in the stations. This is the invitation for us, all right? So, autobiography in five short chapters. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I don't see it. I fall in again. I cannot believe I'm in the same place. It isn't my fault, and it still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I fall in. It's a habit. It is my fault. I know where I am, and I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk, and I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down a different street. That's the invitation of of our Jesus. And for those of us who look at Jesus' teaching as burdensome, well, no wonder discipleship is a chore. Of course, if you think all Jesus is doing is just piling on new things we've got to do to win God's favor— Of course, who'd want to be a part of that? Fortunately, Jesus isn't doing that. Jesus is teaching us what our identity already is and what it means to live into what's already true of us. And not only that, for those of us old enough and dumb enough to have tried the route of unforgiveness, to have tried the route of infidelity, to have tried the route of greed, to have tried the route of stepping on people in order to get ahead, there are quite a few of us who recognize the emptiness of that whole way of living, and are ready for something new. And so to a community like us, even 2,000 years after these words were said, the invitation is to repent in light of the kingdom that has come. Let us consider what it means to walk down another street. So the invitation today is, as always, up to you. We have these stations around the room. They have communion. And so we always, always invite everyone every week to the table. That this is the clearest expression of what God has done in Christ for us. And it's the clearest expression about the kind of community we are to be together. That everyone is welcome. Whether you're struggling, whether you're doubting, whether you're questioning, whether you've had a great week or a bad one, this reorients us to what is true about God and about us. This is the kingdom come. The second invitation is that there are these pieces of paper that are around the room. People write down all sorts of prayer requests, and we pray over these during the week. You write them down, you roll them up, and you place them in the holes in the wood. But today, I mean, the obvious sort of question is, what's, look, what's it mean to walk down another street for you, for me? What is a piece of old humanity I desperately want to put off and a piece of new humanity I desperately want to put on? Just consider a moment. If God is, has come and is coming, what implications are there 
Where's an area that is out of alignment with that? Not out of guilt or shame, for crying out loud, no. But out of a desire to be free and fully human. And maybe, maybe if something comes to mind, you just write it down. I want to put off this in order to grab hold of this. And that's just a small, tiny speck of something we'll have to pray over and over and over again till we get used to walking down different streets. So let me pray for us, and then we'll continue our time together. I invite the band back up. So Father, Lord, we want to be a people who joyfully um, consider and reconsider what it means to live in alignment with what you're doing. And Lord, we are so grateful there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we don't do this out of guilt. We don't do this out of shame. Lord, we do this out of a deep and abiding thirst to be free and fully human. And so we just pray for your spirit who is already here and active just to bring things to mind. God, we want to become people who are kingdom people, who reflect and image Jesus well. So to that end, we just pray that our time here isn't just done out of duty, it's not just done out of obligation, it's not checking a box, but it is the sincere pursuit of a Jesus kind of community together. And so God, for that, we need your spirit to come, to mold, to shape, to tell the truth. And so we, are, we open ourselves up to that, Lord, and bless you in the name of our Christ, amen.